Welcome back, everyone, to uh, Latin One. My name is Deacon Nathan Allen, and we will be this week going through Unit Two in the A Primer of Ecclesiastical Latin by John F. Collins. A bit of by way of review from last week. Last week we talked about, of course, pronunciation. I'm sure that you've all been practicing uh, your Latin pronunciation. Um, but and the differences between the uh, classical pronunciation that is often taught in schools and also the and the uh, uh, ecclesiastical pronunciation, which we're using in this course. Um, also, we talked about nouns and we introduced the first declension of Latin nouns. And also we talked about uh grammatical gender in Latin. So a little bit by way of review. Remember, Latin, as with a lot of, uh, well, certainly its daughter languages, the Romance, modern Romance languages like French and Italian and Spanish and so forth, um, have grammatical gender. English used to have grammatical gender and our related languages like German still do. Uh, but with English, our grammatical gender has pretty much vanished except in our pronouns. Uh, now, keep in mind, this is a grammatical element uh, of the language. So apart from places where the grammatical gender clearly matches up with uh, biological sex. So, for example, if you're talking about a man, you're going to use in Latin the masculine gender, just as you would in English, you'd use masculine pronouns. And if you're talking about a woman in Latin, you'll be using the feminine gender, just as you would in English with feminine pronouns. Um, and to some extent, you may be doing that too with animals if the sex of the animal is, is relevant, you know, if you're actually talking about a hen or a rooster, for example. Um, but otherwise, grammatical gender really has no bearing whatsoever on whether something is a he or a she. It's simply a grammatical element. Uh, but it's important to keep it in mind because it does affect how the noun is used, uh, what adjectives will be used for it when we get to adjectives, um, and so forth. So uh, uh, anyway, the first declension, and there, remember we talked about how Latin generally their nouns fall into five broad categories called declensions, and they generally follow a pattern, although with each declension there are some exceptions, um, uh, complete exceptions or maybe you know two or th more different types you know, that all fall within that same declension. The first declension uh, are nouns that in their nominative singular, that's the, uh, the subjective case, singular, uh, end in the letter A. Although there are some exceptions, especially we'll learn them later when you get Greek names that end in A-S, they'll come into Latin under the, uh, the, the first declension. But uh, but generally, they're nouns that end in the letter A, and our sample was vita, life. They follow a, a particular uh, um, declension. The genitive singular ends in A, the letters A-E, so vita, vitae. 
And as we talked about, the dictionary form for any noun is going to have the nominative singular. It's going to have the genitive singular either completely written out or if it's, you know, real, pretty obvious, it might just be like a dash a e to show you that it's, you know, uh, that it, that it's uh, uh, first uh, declension because you can always tell the declension from the genitive singular, not from the nominative singular, but from the genitive singular, you can always tell the declension. And that gives you an idea how to, you know, what rules to apply as you go to the different uh, uh, cases in which you'd be using the noun. Also, by way of review, we talked about cases. Latin has five main cases and two kind of residual cases. Uh, we won't really get to the vocative and the locative until they come up a little bit later. Uh, and for the most part, they, they aren't different, okay? Um, but we have five cases. We have the nominative, which is the subjective case. We have the genitive, which is the possessive case, usually equivalent in English. Then we have uh, three cases that in English, we really only have cases in our pronouns. We lost it with our nouns. We used to have it with our nouns, but we don't, you know, for a thousand years, uh, have them in our nouns, except for, uh, we kind of have a, a, a possessive case, you know, the apostrophe S is the usual form. Um, but we have it in our pronouns. Okay. And so we have three cases. We have a subjective case, or predicate case, we have a, uh, um, a, a genitive or possessive case, and then we have an objective case. Uh, but Latin has three objective cases. There's the dative, which you might imagine the prepositions two or four before it. Um, and the accusative, which is the direct object of the action of the sentence. And the ablative, which is uh, you might imagine the prepositions by, uh, with, or from uh, in front of it. Okay. And so we used our example uh, in, you know, with the endings. Uh, uh, you can determine what the root uh, form is and then, and, then, and then add the endings based upon that genitive singular. All right. So that's enough of that by way of, by way of, uh, um, of review. So this week we move on now to unit two, and here we're going to introduce you to the first half of the second declension. Now remember that the first declension, most nouns in the first declension are feminine in gender. Okay. There are some exceptions. Typically, obviously, if you've got a guy like Attila, uh, that's going to be masculine, even though because it ends in an A, it's going to be declined in the first declension. Um, but there are also, you know, so if there's somebody that you know by biological sex is male, that's going to be a masculine noun, even if it's declined in the first declension. Uh, and similarly, if you have uh, a, a profession that by and large in ancient world would have been typically conducted by a man. 
that will also be in the masculine grammatical gender, even though uh, it is in the first uh, uh, declension. And so examples that we used, I think that one of our vocabulary words was, of course, papa, pope, or I suppose you could say daddy as well, but we're not you know, using it in that sense because we're studying ecclesiastical Latin. But papa declines in the first declension. Papa, pape, pape, papam, papa, right? Um, but obviously the pope is a guy, uh, and so it is masculine. Right. Other examples that we didn't cover, but they will come up. Um, nauta, a sailor. Um, poeta, a poet. Agricola, a, a farmer. Uh, those all end in the letter A, and they, so they decline in the first declension, but they are masculine uh, in, uh, in gender. All right. Well, moving on then to the second declension. This one... Unlike the first declension where, except for those few exceptions, almost all the words are going to be feminine, in the second declension you have two basic forms. You have the masculine nouns and the neuter nouns, okay? And uh, there are some differences between them, but let's look. We're going to do the second declension masculine nouns uh, today. So... All second declension nouns, both masculine and neuter, will have in their, their genitive singular form will be a long letter I. Okay? That's how you can tell. The masculine ones will end in either us, U-S, or er, E-R. There are some few that might be I-R, but anyway. Um, <clears throat> those are the two basic uh, 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 forms uh, in the second declension, masculine nouns. And then you can see that on, on uh, page 13, we have a table of what the uh, endings are. You'll notice that these are actually pretty similar to the first declension. If we have a nominative, either U-S ending or nothing, because the word ends in E-R in the nominative, and then the stem is E instead of AE that we had in, in, in uh, uh, I mean, a, a long E instead of A uh, as, as we had in the first declension. Um, but then we have O, UM, O. And in the plural, we have E, ORUM, IS, OS, IS. So it's similar to the first declension, but one big difference. Notice. In the first declension, the genitive singular and the dative singular were identical, whereas in the second declension, it's the dative singular and the ablative singular that are identical. So keep that in mind. That may be something to trip you up, uh, so just keep that in mind. All right. Um, Uh, and obviously, you know, you think, well, oh gosh, these are the, the, if they're spelled exactly the same, how do I know what case they are? Context will tell you. Okay. All right. Now we're going to learn our first word in the, uh, nomin in the, uh, in the, uh, uh, second declension masculine, um, servus servi. 
which means servant or slave. Now, uh, obviously, you know, it's related to our English word. We get our English word servant uh, from it. Um, and, and, you know, when we're reading ancient texts, keep in mind, slavery was very commonplace in the ancient world. Um, and, uh, and in some ways, it was different from the sort of chattel slavery that we had, you know, in America until the Civil War. Um, although there were uh, some differences, there are some differences, uh, uh, but similarities as well. Obviously, a slave was not free by the very nature of slavery and could be bought and sold. Um, but uh, in, uh, in the ancient world, you did have people who were technically by class slaves, but might be highly educated and highly respected people, highly respected artisans or poets. Um, you know, one of the, the most famous is the philosopher Epictetus, who was the teacher of, of the future emperor Marcus Aurelius and is one of the known to history as one of the great um, uh, Stoic philosophers. So, um, but anyway, that, that, that word, our word servus, servi, obviously in today's English, if we're translating, we might want to pay attention to the, the relative uh, um, class of the person we're talking about. It may seem really uh, odd to refer to somebody as a slave who seems to be an upper class individual more and servant might be a better uh, a better word uh, in English, but just keep that in mind. So, for example, if the person is a butler, I don't know if you watch Downton Abbey, but I mean, you imagine a, a high level servant like Carson in Downton Abbey. Um, you know, uh, in Latin, you might use that word servus, but obviously that's a little different than a field hand, you know, who's out mucking about with the pigs or whatever, right? Um, but anyway, the Latin word servus servi is our word for a servant. And this is, this will use as our example to, uh, uh, show how we apply um, the uh, the table uh, for uh, declining in the second declension masculine. So servus servi, we know from the, 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 the long I, letter I, that is the genitive singular ending, that we just whack that off and we get the base form, which is serv, S-E-R-V, and then we add the ending to it. So if we get the nominative, servus, the genitive, servi, the dative, servo, the accusative, servum, and the ablative, servo. And then in the plural, we have servi, servorum, servis, servos, servis. Okay? That is an example of a second declension masculine noun in the U.S. form, us form, which is most of them. But as we said, there are those that end in E-R. And here, again, we have two different forms here. Some of them, when you form the base, you're going to get rid of the E, and so you're going to build off the R. Uh, the example we have here is puer which is a boy or a child. Um, and, uh, but we'll, we'll get, actually when we get to our vocabulary, we're going to uh, learn some others that are a little slightly different than that. Um, incidentally, puer, 
boy or child. Uh, that's what it means. It means a, a male child. But it's also, especially since we we're just talking about servus, um, it was also frequently, you'll find it as in the New Testament even, as a word for slave or servant. Um, and that's an example, I suppose, of, of just the general condescending attitude that a master might have uh, to somebody uh, uh, that, that he controls in that way. Um, I suppose we did the same sort of thing in the uh, Jim Crow American South, uh, uh, you know, and using the word boy to refer to, you know, adult African-American men. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, what we're learning here is its literal meaning, which is a boy child, you know, a male child. Right. And so you'll note that it's puer pueri. Um, and so it declines that its base form is going to be puer. So there's no us at the end of it, puer. And so it declines as puer, pueri, puero, puerum, puero, pueri in the plural, puerorum, pueris, pueros, pueris. All right? Note um, Latin... Uh, We've as we get into sentences, this is going to be a little more uh, evident. Latin does not have a direct um, uh, uh, or a definitive article. Um, in English, we have a, we make a distinction between the and you know a or an. Um, so we make a distinction between the definite article and the indefinite uh, article. Latin doesn't do that, although there are ways of doing that uh, um, to specify that you're talking about this particular uh, thing or person. Um, generally, you'll get it from context. And a sentence could be translated multiple ways, but, you know, you, you, you get it from the context, how you would, how you would get the, what, what it means. Um, so... You know, when we say puer, we could mean the boy or we could mean a boy. Okay. Um, moving on then to uh, our first verb that we're going to learn. It's a good one. The verb sum, to be. Okay. Um, note that in Latin dictionaries, verbs are always going to be found under their First person, present singular, present indicative active form. Now, what does that mean? Um, first person, that means it's I or we, right? But it's singular, which means it's I, the I form of the verb. And then uh, uh, it is, the, so first person, singular, present tense, indicative uh, there are two different the indicative mood and the the uh, the subjunctive mood um, we'll learn that much later um, the uh, the subjunctive is the uh, if it were kind of notion you know the the might it be kind of idea the indicative is you know it is this way and you know um, uh, so first person singular, present indicative, and it's active rather than passive. A passive verb would be like uh, uh, the difference between uh, I read the book and the book was read by me. Okay. Uh, was read is, it would be passive. 
um, uh, because the subject of the sentence book is not doing the reading. I am the one doing the reading, <laughs> you know. Uh, so uh, anyway, um, that's the form you're going to find it in the dictionary. Now, that may seem weird, especially in a verb like to be, where uh, you couldn't really get – it's irregular. So you really couldn't guess what the rest of the forms are going to look like just from the uh, the the dictionary the you know, form the, of the, the first person singular present indicative active form. Just like if you if, – if in our English dictionary, the verb was – put under am <laughs> and you had to find am in the dictionary, you would have no idea that that's the same verb as, you know, is right. But, it, uh, but it is. <laughs> okay. So anyway, uh, and dictionaries in Latin dictionary form in Latin are going to have, uh, usually four principal parts will be laid out. And those are important when you learn a verb, memorize those four principal parts so that when you think sum, you also think esse fui and futurus. Now, why do we do that? Because other forms of the verb will be based on those four principal parts. You'll drop a bit of it and add you know, to find the stem that you add the other endings onto. So when you learn a verb, you know, especially now that you're starting out, just learn the forms. You know, it's a lot easier to learn this stuff right now from the beginning rather than try to backfill it later uh, to add in the gaps that you didn't get. Just as, you know, we talked about how even though in your Latin texts, like your missal, uh, are not going to have the macrons marked, it's a good idea to learn them now, uh, when you're, as you're learning verb, learning words, verbs and nouns, uh, in their various forms, because, uh, it'll be really hard to backfill it later. Okay. So this, uh, the verb to be is a copulative verb. It, it, let's call that because it brings together, it connects, uh, the subject with a predicate, something that describes the subject, right? Um, and so in the, uh, the first person, uh, um, present indicative, or the, in the present indicative active, we have three persons, right? We've got I, we've got you singular, and then we've got he, she, or it. And then in the plural, we've got we, we've got you plural, and we've got, um, uh, they are the, are the forms for all the, for all the verbs. So we've got three persons and two, uh, n different numbers, singular and plural. Note in Latin, we make a distinction between the second person singular and second person plural that we don't make in English anymore. Although we used to make it, uh, the difference between thou and you. Um, I suppose in some of our dialects, we might say, um, you and y'all, uh, <laughs> or we, or maybe it's y'all and all y'all. Uh, but anyway, or use guys. Uh, uh, but anyway, um, generally when we translate, uh, into English, uh, standard modern English, we don't make a distinction between the singular and the plural in the second person, but Latin does. Uh, if incidentally, for those of you who have studied 
a um, another Romance language. So one of the daughter languages that descended from Latin, like French or Italian or Spanish or Portuguese. Um, often the second person singular will have a connotation of intimacy or uh, um, and consequently it will be considered rude if the person is not in the sort of relationship. So you would never in uh, in French, for example, use the two form uh, when referring to your teacher. I did that once uh, in my first week of French in high school. Um, <laughs> but you might use that obviously with a very close friend or with a, a family member uh, or a child. Um, in Latin, it doesn't have that sense. You would use the the uh, second person singular form to refer to God, to refer to, you know, the emperor, to refer to your dog. You know, it, it just means there's only one of you and not two or more. All right. So anyway, um, in the, uh, the the verb sum, in or sum esse fui futurus, uh, in the uh Present indicative active comes out as sum, I am, s, you singular are, or thou art, if we want to make that distinction, est, he, she, or it is, sumus, we are, estis, you are, sunt, they are. All right. Notice in Latin how the pronoun then, because it's built right into the verb, uh, is not always necessary to bring out in the sentence because it's already built into the verb that's being used. In a sense, we do that in English too, although it would be weird to say am, <laughs> you know, uh, rather than I am, you know. Um, we wouldn't say, uh, you know, uh, uh, deacon am, <laughs> you know. I would say I am a deacon, right? Um, but in Latin, you could say that uh, because the, the pronoun is built right into the verb. Okay. Um, the next uh, grammatical bit we're going to talk about is uh, the kinds of sentences in Latin as in English. Um, it takes, you know, uh, there are there are three kinds of independent clauses or sentences. You've got statements, you've got questions, and you've got commands, which would include requests. Okay, And you can do that directly or indirectly. So, for example, if I'm making a statement, I might say, as our book has on page 15, I visited my brother. But an indirect statement would be, he said that he had visited his brother. Okay, And the same thing can be said for questions and for commands. All right. Um, an exclamatory sentence is something is a special form of the direct statement. You know? But anyway, um, when we're dealing with the seven basic sentence patterns, or you know these these uh, these independent clause patterns, um, we have uh, our book lays out you know seven different. Uh, ways in which 
sentences can be formed. Um, I think this is all pretty straightforward to us because Latin does exactly the same thing that English does here. So you can use a, a subject with an intransitive verb, although, as we said, you don't need to um, express the pronoun uh, in Latin because it's already built into the verb. Um, you can have the, a, an intransitive verb with an adverb that modifies uh, the um, uh, uh, that modifies the verb. Um, you can have a transitive verb with an, a direct object or with an indirect object or with both, you know. Um, you can use it, especially the verb sum, uh, as a copulative so that you can take an adjective uh, or a predicate noun and so that you're saying that this the subject is this other thing you know peter is good peter is pope right and then you can also use it with a passive verb um and so you're you're being you know i the example we use here is laudor a petro i am praised by peter um the uh the you know, Peter is the one doing the praising. <laughs> so that's why it's a passive verb. But we're going to learn active and passive verbs later. But anyway, those seven basic sentence patterns, that should be pretty straightforward because we do that in English too. All right. Um, so let's look at the, the, the first of those, these, these direct statements. The, we talked about the kinds of sentences, direct statements as opposed to questions and commands or requests. Um, in Latin, as in English, you need a verb. You also need a subject and you need, uh, perhaps depending on the sentence form, you might need an object of some sort. But as we had mentioned, the subject, if it's a pronoun, might actually be built into the verb itself. So you don't need to express it. Uh, so for example, in Latin, it is a complete sentence to say sum. Because it means I am or I exist. Okay. Um, now, as we had mentioned, there are no uh, uh, definitive article and indefinite article in uh, in in uh, or definite article or indefinite article in Latin. So the sentence "Papa est" can mean a pope is, or the pope is. It can also mean there is a pope. Or it can mean he is the Pope. <laughs> okay. Um, and that's going to depend on context. So, for example, if I were to say, um, uh, you know, uh, oh, we've got the conclave and the cardinals are meeting and and we I haven't heard if there's a vote yet. Is there a result? It was a white smoke or black smoke. And somebody were to respond, Papa asked. That could mean there is a Pope. There was white smoke, you know. Uh, or if I were to ask the question, who is this Francis of whom you are speaking? And someone were to say, Papa est, that would mean he is the Pope. Okay. Same exact sentence form in, 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 uh, same words in Latin, but depending on their context, have a different meaning. And then also you can use this, these direct statements to use a, a noun or, or an adjective, um, as a predicate of the subject. So Papa es minister, minister, um, the Pope is a servant. Here's another word we learned. There's again, this is one of those ER ones. Minister 
ministri. Okay, notice how the e that in the 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 in minister drops out, and we get ministri, which is different from puer. We don't get pur purum puram pur puri pur, You know, we get it's still puer. Uh, but so this is one of those variations on that er uh, second declension masculine noun. All right. Um, as with English, so with Latin, the subject and the verb have to agree. Okay. So if the subject is singular, the verb has to be singular. If the subject is plural, the verb has to be plural. Uh, just as you wouldn't say, uh, they is in English, um, you, uh, you know, wouldn't, if you're using a plural, uh, noun, say, you know, uh, um, pueri sunt, uh, they are boys or the boy, uh, there are boys or whatever, you know, you would have to use a plural form. Okay. Here's another verb, we're, another uh, word we're going to uh, learn. And that's, uh, uh, the noun deus, deus dei, God, pretty straightforward. Although keep in mind, Deus is uh, one of those second declension masculine nouns that looks like it's going to follow the standard us form. But as we learn to decline it, it declines slightly differently when we get to the plural. Um, you might joke that, you know, God and gods are different from the rest of us, so they'll be slightly different. Um, it, in Christian Latin, it's not generally going to be a problem because we only believe in one God and the singular uh, declines as you would expect. But, you know, a, a, you may come across passages in scripture, for example, that refer to um, uh, the gods of the nations, the pagan gods. Uh, and, and so you may end up in the plural and it's going to be slightly different. So just keep that in mind. Yeah. You know. um, all right. So we talked about how, you know, you, you got to agree with the verb. The, the verb and the subject have to agree. Pueri sunt servi. The boys are servants. Okay. Puer est servus. The boy is a servant. So it's singular, right? Okay. Now, uh, another grammatical point before we get to our vocabulary words for this week. The genitive of possession. Now, we've talked about the genitive case and how... In English, our genitive case is a possessive case. You kind of have, you can imagine the preposition of in front of it. And that's the usual form of the genitive in, in, in Latin that has that sense of possession to it. Um, and so that's why we're learning here. But that sense of possession can have multiple kind of layers of meaning, right? We can talk about someone who owns something, someone who possesses something, uh, or someone, uh, uh, or, or someone or something that belongs to somebody else. And so, uh, these three related ideas, uh, our uh, text tells us can be, uh, illustrated, for example, in the kind of awkward sentence, Amy's book was left in Amy's locker in Amy's school. Now, obviously Amy owns the book, but she possesses the locker. She doesn't own the locker unless she's bought it, I suppose. Um, and she belongs to the school. The school doesn't belong to her unless she's hyper rich and, you know, owns the, <laughs> no, um, owns the school. So anyway, she, she's part of the school, but you'd use the genitive anyway for that. 
Uh, this genitive of possession might be translated in English with the preposition of or, you know, with the apostrophe S that we frequently use. So uh, our sentence using words we know now, Papa est minister Christi. The Pope is the minister of Christ. Okay. Or the Pope is Christ's minister. Minister. Keep in mind, we talk when we introduce minister, it means minister, but always have in the back of your head that the sense of minister that we don't use in America, but the rest of the English speaking world will use the idea of the prime minister or, you know, a minister of the crown, the minister for defense, you know, and so forth uh, in, in their government. A minister is somebody who stands in the place of somebody, okay, somebody higher. Um, so it doesn't have the, exclusively the meaning of a religious uh, figure, um, but uh, uh, obviously in a Christian context it might. But the Pope is Christ's minister, meaning he's Christ's, you know, agent acting in the world, Um Okay, and that word uh, Christus, Christi, again, very standard, uh, declines perfectly normally and naturally in the second declension masculine. Um, this means anointed one, Messiah, or in a Christian context, Christ. Okay, this is one of those words you can tell because it's a ch word, and Latin doesn't generally have a ch. It's coming from Greek, um, and. Uh, and the Greek word means anointed one. Uh, and we get related words like chrism, the oil that's used for anointing at baptism, confirmation, and ordinations uh, from that word. Uh, but it's anointed one, and it, it's used in the Greek, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. The translation is called the Septuagint. It was used to translate the word in Hebrew, Mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one. Um, and an anointed one was, first of all, you had the king, the Lord's anointed, and he was anointed king by pouring oil on his head. As we see when uh, Samuel, the prophet Samuel, anointed Saul and then subsequently anointed David, and then there were other anointings of kings. Priests in the Old Testament were also anointed with an anointing oil. And some prophets were also anointed. Um, and that Hebrew word, Mashiach, comes into English as Messiah, but it came into Greek as Christos, which then comes into Latin as Christu, Christus, and into English as Christ. All right. In a Christian context, it's going to mean Jesus Christ, our Lord, except in some contexts, uh, like, for example, the I think it's the second psalm that refers to the Lord's anointed, meaning the king of Israel, and then by application to Christ. And uh, and the, the word in the Latin would be Christus. All right. Vocabulary. We have covered our uh, our verb sum esse hui futurus to be or to exist. Um, look, we're going to get uh, you know all of our vocabulary is not going to be exclusively uh, second declension masculine as we're going to 
give us a chance to review our first declension. So we get the word anchila, anchile, which is feminine, and it is a maid, a female servant. Our English word ancillary, you know, kind of to help something on the side, um, comes from that. Um, and uh, uh, then uh, we get judea, judee, for again, feminine for Judea. Notice um, uh, uh, Collins uses a J. Uh, a lot of times you'll see this with a capital I in ecclesiastical Latin, more more modern ecclesiastical Latin text. It's still, it's pronounced, it's that consonant I, which is pronounced like a Y. Okay, so Judea, Judea. And similarly with justitia, justitiae, which we get our word um, judicial, right, uh, from this. Um, justice, uh, so righteousness or justice. Here's a name, again, another first declension feminine name, Maria, Marie. Uh, I was about to start into a song from West Side Story, but I won't. Um, uh, a note on, on Maria, in, in its Latin, it comes from, it's a Latin form of the Hebrew name Miriam, uh, who was originally uh, uh, Moses and Aaron's uh, sister, Miriam. Um, it was a fairly common name in uh, the first century among Jewish women. And, you know, we got probably three, if not more of them in the New Testament. So it can get a little confusing. Is Mary of Bethany the same as Mary Magdalene? And is, you know, Mary, the wife of Clovis, the same as Mary, the mother of Jesus? You know, um, so there, there are a lot of them. Anyway, Maria was originally had a short eye, uh, but in ecclesiastical Latin, it came to be pronounced long, probably because the word that we'll get to later uh, could mean, you know, the sea. Uh, so, uh, like, you know, the Mediterranean. Um, so, uh, um, there, uh, uh, anyway, it's it, in ecclesiastical Latin, it has a long I. So, it's Maria. So, the, the, the accent is on that penultimate syllable rather than on the, on the first syllable. Okay. Potentia, potentiae, another feminine noun, uh, power. We get our word potency, you know, uh, potential uh, from, from that word. And then we get another one of those ER uh, um, uh, second declension masculine nouns, ager, agri. Notice the E drops out. And so because we can see from the genitive singular, uh, agri, it's going to be ager, agri, right? Agro, agrum, agro, agri, agrorum, agris, agros, agris, right? Okay. Um, and obviously we get our word agriculture. It means, ager means a field. In the plural, it means country in the sense of countryside, not like a country of, you know, France or Germany or something like that. Um uh, which means, you know, we're going out to the fields, you know, imagine that's the countryside, right? So if it's in the plural, it has a slightly different meaning, but it means the field, uh, field. We get our word agriculture, you know, from it. Um, uh, 
Then we move on to Agnus Agni, which is masculine, means lamb. Incidentally, I mean, our parish is the parish of St. Agnes in St. Paul, Minnesota. And in Western iconography, Agnes, our patroness, is always shown holding a lamb. That's a pun. <laughs> okay. Agnes, Agnus. In, but if you see Greek iconography of the martyr St. Agnes, there's no lamb. Why is that? Because the pun doesn't work in Greek. Uh, Agnes, her name, actually comes from the Greek uh, Agne, which means pure or chaste. So the pun doesn't work in Greek. So when you see a Greek icon of St. Agnes, she's, you know, a virgin martyr, but there's no, there's no sheep involved. Uh, but in Latin iconography, she's always represented holding a lamb. Uh, and it's just a pun. Okay. Um, and, uh, uh, we, um, let's see. And then the next one we have is Angelus Angeli, a messenger or an angel note, uh, um, Angelus can be used for an ordinary messenger, a human being that you send to carry a message to somebody. Uh, it comes from the Greek word, uh, angelos, uh, which has exactly the same meaning. In, obviously, in Christian context, it is often, uh, you know, angelus dei, the, the angel of God, right? The, the messenger of God, meaning, a, meaning an angel in our, in our, sense of, you know, the, the guy with the wings, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, St. Gabriel and, and so forth. Right. And then, uh, in Greek, you can have that, the, add that arch, uh, you know, arc, uh, uh, preface to it, which means like the, a ruler. Um, so you get, uh, Archangelus, Archangeli is an archangel. Okay. Um, Apostolos, Apostolus Apostoli. Okay. This is also, this also comes from a Greek word. Now, a lot of our Latin, especially ecclesiastical Latin, but even classical Latin words come from Greek, as we've mentioned last time. Uh, Greek was the language of learning. Uh, Greek philosophy, Greek science, uh, was very important. And so a lot of the, it was also the language of commerce too in the first century. Um, but a lot of the upper class would have been educated in Greek and fluent in both Greek and Latin. Um, and so, and the New Testament was written in Greek. And consequently, then not only do you have this sense that Greek is the language of learning, but also, um, uh, Greek was the language that, you know, the apostles wrote in. And so it shouldn't be surprising that a lot of Greek words are going to come into ecclesiastical Latin that might not have come into classical Latin. Apostolus simply means someone sent. So if you're talking, if you're using the word apostolus to a first century Roman who was, you know, pagan Roman, uh, it, it wouldn't have had any additional meaning, you know, wouldn't have implied the 12 principal disciples to him at all. It would have meant, you know, somebody who was sent. Um, but in a Christian context, of course, it means an apostle. Um, we talked about Christus Christi and we talked about Deus Dei. Notice that 
would mention, though, it's a little different in the plural. The nominative plural form is not dei, it's dei, d-i, and then a long i. Uh, and obviously for us as Christians, because we only believe in one true God, uh, if we're going to be using the plural, we're referring to pagan deities, right? Uh, and from Deus, uh, speaking of deity, uh, English words like deity or deist, you know, Thomas Jefferson was a deist, uh, um, uh, uh, someone who believes in kind of an impersonal God, um, uh, those all derive from this word Deus. Discipulus, discipuli. This is a obviously disciple, but it also generally means a student. Um, and you know the word uh, the word derives from a verb you're going to learn much much later. Actually, you will learn it toward the end of this book, so you'd be in Latin too. Um, uh, the the ver- verb disco, which means you know I learn. Um, but anyway, so discipulus, discipuli is, is a, is a disciple. Um, dominus, domini. This is Lord or master. It's also just as our word, our English word, mister comes from master. <laughs> um, in Latin, dominus doesn't necessarily mean God. Uh, it can, or even my Lord. Uh, in, in a human context, it can also be a term of, uh, of address to a, uh, uh, to a respectable person, you know, kind of sir, uh, sense to it. Um, episcopus episcopi. This is another one of those Greek words that come into ecclesiastical Latin. Literally, it means an overseer, someone who looks over something, a superintendent. Um, but it becomes, in your Christian context, it comes to mean bishop. And so we get our, obviously, our English words like episcopal and bishop from it. Um, I, I'm fascinated by language shift and the whole, you know, Grimm's Law and all this and how you can see how words will come from the same source and they'll, they, 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 uh, evolve down the centuries in very established patterns. Um, and so our English word bishop comes directly from episcopus, which of course comes from the Greek word episkopos, you know, a superintendent or overseer. Um, the initial E kind of drops off the, the, uh, Unvoiced plosive P becomes a voiced plosive B, um, and the SK sound in the middle becomes an SH sound in English, uh, uh, in, in, in Old English. Um, and you'll see this. English is a wonderful language. We, we have been relexified many times by everybody we get in contact with. Um, and we suck up words. We just soak them up like a sponge. And so a word that might have multiple, you know, more general meaning in its native language, when it comes into English, it gets a very specialized language. So we have a lot of words for the same basic thing. I mean, think, for example, of the German word Hund, which means a dog, right? But in English, it means a specific kind of dog, a hound, right? Um and, uh, and uh, any, anyway, we start seeing this S K S H kind of thing and the P and F, um, 
which we're not talking about here, but the, the, this, this consonantal, uh, consonantal shift. So you get the English word ship, but along come Vikings and they have a different kind of vessel, a special kind of that they would call a skiff. And we take that word too. <laughs> it's the same word, uh, uh originally, but, uh, and shirt and skirt are the same word. Uh, in, uh, originally, and you go back far enough into the proto-Germanic languages. Um, but in English, they have different meanings because we've adopted them over different times. Um, we do the same thing with French, for example. So we get chief, which means something different than a chef, even though it's the same word ultimately. All right. That's enough of that disquisition. Prochidamus, let us move on. Um, all right, then we get to filius filii. This is son, um, minister ministri. We talked about that one, a uh, servant or a minister. Incidentally, filius, you know, we have an English word filial, like filial piety is the, the, uh, the love and reverence that a, you know, a son owes to his parents or, you know, generally to his ancestors. We call it filial piety. Um, a filial affection and so forth. All right. Now we get to a name, Petrus Petri, um, Peter. This comes again from Greek, Petros, meaning rock. Uh, you are Peter, and on this rock I build my church. Um, it declines normally like a second declension masculine noun. Populus populi means people. We get a word popular, populous, so forth. Puer, pueri, boy, child, and then that sense of servant, um, the kind of condescending sense of servant. Um, we get an English word puerile. You know, if somebody's got, you know, a sense of humor that's kind of like what you'd expect out of a 12-year-old, you know, I say, what a puerile sense of humor, you know. Um, okay. Um Here's another Greek word that comes into ecclesiastical Latin. It was probably not used much by classical Latin. Psalmus, psalmi, which means a psalm. Okay. We've covered uh, servus servi, right? We get our word servant from that, uh, ultimately from that word. And then we get here, we're going to learn a, or, uh, an adverb, hodie. Hodie means today. It's actually a compound word that kind of collapses together, which actually, when you think about it, today is as well. Today in English. And if you if you read like older writers in English up until like the 1930s, I think it started going out of fashion. You might see today written as a hyphenated word, T-O hyphen day um, in English. Uh, we don't generally do that now. Um, but hodie is the same sort of thing. It means this day, on this day in Latin. Um, but it, it, it kind of collapsed into a single word. Another a coordinating uh, conjunction, nam, for, on the sense of, of, of uh, um, you know, explaining something. Uh, it, you know, uh, it, it introduces an independent clause. It's kind of because or on account of kind of that notion of for. Non is not. Okay, we use that in, in English a lot. You know, we might say, you know, that's a, 
that that uh, you know um, you know we're talking about like a non-aligned nations or a uh, uh, um, if it's a positive or a negative number, but it's not zero, we might call it a non-zero number, which seems kind of odd. But you know, so uh, uh, we we use the same word in English. And then trans is a preposition. It means across. And we get, obviously, our English word transmit, transverse, you know, uh, transit, uh, with, has that same sense. Notice that it says in our, in our, when we learn our word trans, preposition plus the accusative. Trans always takes the accusative when it's used. Some prepositions are going to take the, uh, the accusative. Some are going to take the genitive. Some are going to take uh, the dative, most will take the ablative, but here it takes the accusative. Why? A lot of words, a lot of prepositions that take the accusative have a sense of motion to something. And some prepositions, as we'll learn later, could have a different meaning depending on whether it's taking the accusative or taking uh, the ablative, for example. Um, so, uh, keep that in mind when you use trance, it always uses the, the noun that it, that it's, that it's the, that's the object of this preposition will always be in the accusative. It won't be in any other, uh, um, case. All right. Uh, then we have some, uh, uh, vocabulary notes, but I think we, we covered, uh, those as we were doing each word. Um, and, uh, then we have some of our English derivatives. All right. Your homework next, this, this week is, uh, found on page 20, uh, do the drills. So you're going to go through and decline, uh, your vocabulary words. Like I say, you're probably going to do that anyway, because I strongly recommend that you by hand write out on three by five cards, your own flashcards for studying your words and write them out in all their forms. There's something about that, you know, using our hands to write something out on paper or on a three by five card that gives you one more entry to make it stick in your brain. And it also gives you something that you can review um, by looking at the back word, you know, you know, what does it mean? Field, um, ajar agri, and then you could, you know, decline it and so forth. Um, so uh, you'll go through, uh, you know, drill your vocabulary, translate your sentences. Uh, keep in mind, you know, sometimes you can get some odd translations of your sentences, um, uh, that may be literal Latin, but not particularly good English. <laughs> and, and keep in mind that some sentences might have multiple meanings depending on their context. And obviously, since you've got this sentence standing all by itself, it doesn't have a context. So, uh, you might want to keep in mind that there are possibly more than one, uh, meaning, uh, for the sentences. All right. Um, again, uh, uh, email me any questions earlier in the week. Uh, I'd like to get any questions you might have before Wednesday, uh, uh, so that I can record a short, uh, I hope, uh, podcast, uh, uh, to drop before, uh, the next, uh, lesson that we move on to, um, to answer any questions you might have, uh, and, uh, and also perhaps to review any interesting bits, uh, in the homework. I don't know that we'll need to go through every single one of them. Um, but, uh, uh, and you can get an answer key for Collins, 
again, I recommend not looking at the answer key until you've already tried. Uh, um, but uh, uh, so we, I don't think we need to go through uh, necessarily every single uh, uh, question, but uh, or I mean every single uh, one of the drills. Uh, but anything that might be interesting, I'll, I'll raise in that subsequent podcast. All right, very good. I will talk to you uh, next time as we proceed to uh, unit three.